you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity to come before you and open the word and to study. We ask you to guide and lead. Let your spirit show us what we should learn from this. And we just thank you for your loving kindness. In Jesus' name, amen. 2 Samuel chapter 14. We're continuing the story of Absalom. And remember that Absalom killed his his, uh, half-brother Ammon, ran away to Grandpa's house and was there for for three years, and that's where we left him, hiding. And at the very last verse on uh, 13 said, The soul of King David longed to go forth unto Absalom, for he was comforted concerning Ammon, seeing as he was dead. So I don't know why David didn't go after Absalom. You know, I don't, he wanted to go after him, wanted to forgive him, and yet didn't do it. So I don't know if it was because he feared the people and how the people would react, you know, accepting, you know, the murderer of the, of the crown prince uh, or what his reason was, but he didn't go after Absalom. <laughs> and uh, doesn't really tell us. <laughs> Just says he longed for him. Verse 1 of chapter 14. Now Joab, the son of Zeruiah, perceived that the king's heart was toward Absalom, and Joab sent to Tekoa and fetched there a wise woman and said unto her, I pray you, feign yourself to be a mourner and put on mourning apparel and anoint not yourself with oil, but be as a woman that hath long mourned for the dead and come to the king and speak on this manner unto him. So Joab put words in her mouth. We're going to stop right there for just a moment because this is an interesting, this whole chapter is kind of an interesting chapter when we read through it. So Joab is, is uh, David's cousin, remember, because he's, he's the son of David's sister, so, so excuse me, nephew. <laughs> and he sees that David really wants Absalom back. He knows David well enough. He goes, okay, he wants him back. Let's see, let's see if I can help him. Apparently, he likes Absalom as well. And so... He goes and he sends to Tekoa. Now, Tekoa is a hill country near Hebron in the wilderness. Uh, most of it, it they, in the Hebrew uh, thought process, up there around Tekoa is where the hillbilly and the hicks live. All right? Uh, that would be, you know, that wasn't their term for them, but that was their attitude to them. You know, they, they live up there in the middle of nothing. They're uncivilized up there. They're uncouth. So he calls for somebody up in that area. And it, and it says that she is, was a wise woman. And wise is not the best definition for this word. Cunning and sub- subtle. She is, she is uh, very intelligent, but she is willing to make stories. <laughs> and Jaya, uh, Joab is going to give... Eh, the story... The story she tells to David isn't a true story. So uh, she, she is a person who's willing to play the con. Uh, that's the kind of person this wise is. She is, she, is not, she is not a good, upright person. This is who Joab went to go get to, to, play this per, to play this part. So this word for wise isn't our normal walk in God's standards and tell the truth and be good. This is, this is somebody who's subtle, cunning, going to try to twist somebody to, to a particular path. And he says, feign or pretend to be a mourner and put on mourning cloth. In other words, sackcloth and more, uh, 
sackcloth and or dark mourning clothes, you know, the dark colors of mourning. And don't anoint yourself. And be as a woman that has long mourned for the dead. So he's saying, I want you to come in. You're going to look pitiful. You are going to look pitiful. You're not going to anoint yourself with oil. You're not going to put on, you're not putting on uh, uh, per, uh, makeup. You're, you're looking at somebody. You're going to look like somebody who's been long time in mourning. And we know what this looks like at times. If you know, if you've ever met somebody who has been very sad for their lost, usually a lost child or a lost, lost uh, spouse, and they just don't get over it. And their eyes always look like they're crying. Their eyes always, you know, there's, there's not a smile on their face. This is what Joab is telling her to be. This person who is just miserable. And, and then it says, come to the king. <laughs> And speak in the manner, and it says, So Joab put the words in her mouth. He told her what to say. Okay, he kind of knows David well enough. He knows, he knows the words that are going to affect David. This kind of takes us back to Nathan's story to David when, from God, you know, where he starts telling about this man who kills another man, you know, takes, takes another man's light, uh, lamb and then kills him. He, you know, God knows that that story is going to really get to the heart of David. And this is the amazing thing sometimes, is sometimes God puts us in a place where we might just say something that touches somebody without us knowing how we've had that little prick in their, in their armor. Uh, maybe you know somebody who's done that to you in your life, where God's come along and you think you're all tough in that area, and all of a sudden God just has them Say just the right thing, just the right way, do the right thing. And you feel that prick in the armor that says, God saying, pay attention. Pay attention, I want you to repent. And here is Joab trying to play the Holy Spirit in God in this case. Now, he is not, he is doing what Nathan did, but he is not anywhere in here saying that God told him to do it. And if God did tell him to do it, God would not have told him to do it the way he's doing it. All right? He is not, he is setting this woman up to lie and, and uh, pretend. God does not work out his will through lying and deceit. Now, he may turn it around for good, but that is never his desire to get something. So if you're thinking, I'm doing something for God by lying and cheating and, and deceiving, you're not. God may still use it because that's his prerogative for all things to work out, to work together for good. But don't ever try to deceive yourself into believing that the ends justify the mean. As long as something good happens, it was good. All through the scriptures, God shows us where things are done wrong and God turns them to for good, but the people get punished. They, uh, Joseph's brothers sell Joseph into slavery. God turns it to good by raising him up to be head of Israel, uh, head of uh, Egypt, and saving his his family. But his family suffered in great process. Well, they lied to Joseph, uh, uh, to uh, Jacob, telling them that Joseph was dead. Uh, they lived in fear. You know, just think about this. You read the story of them going down into you know, Egypt 
And every time they turn around, this is because of what we did. 17 years ago, 13 years ago, this is, all of this is because of what we did to Joseph when he was young. They lived in huge guilt. Now, God turned it around for good, but it was, they suffered. We pay a consequence. Even if God turns it for good, we pay a consequence or anybody pays a consequence. And so we see here, there's nothing here that says God tells Joab to do this. And we see from this, when Absalom comes back, David still is not going to let him come back into the palace. And that's going to cause bitterness to Absalom. And then Absalom's going to rebel and try to take over the throne from David. And he's going to end up dead in the process. So this whole thing that Joab's doing is going to lead to the death of, jo of Absalom. Oh, Joab's not a very nice person either. Remember, Joab is the one that killed Abner earlier because he killed, Abner killed his brother in battle. And so he kills Abner in cold blood. So you're right, Joab is not a nice person. Joab is also very much knowledgeable of what David has done in the murder of Uriah because he's the one that got the letter saying put him on the front line and then retreat from him so that he'll be dead. And uh, so he is not a nice person. He is a manipulator. He's a conniver. And we see this over and over again. And I really truly believe that he held the, the, the murder of Uriah over David's head. You know, I know something, David, and you don't want me to tell, so... You know, you're going to do what I want. And I'm sure he used that leverage at various points in his career, which is one of the reasons when Solomon takes over, David tells Solomon, get rid of Abner. I didn't get him. He was powerful. He was too powerful for me. But you're, you're, you need to get rid of him because you're going to be the new king. He's too strong for you to get just, you're the new king establishing power. Get rid of him. And Solomon does. All right. So Abner's not a nice guy. Now, Joab's not a nice guy, and he is uh, manipulating David at this point and trying to bring Absalom back. Now, is he trying to bring Absalom back to try to get a rebellion later on? I don't know. It doesn't really tell us why he's doing what he's doing. He is just trying to get uh, Absalom back into Jerusalem. Verse 4. And when the woman of Tekoa spoke to the king, she fell on her face to the ground and did obsessance and said, Help, O king. And the king said to her, What ails you? And she said, answered, I am indeed a widow woman, and my husband is dead. And your handmaid had two sons, and they two strove together in the field. And there was none to part them, but the one smote the other and slew him. And behold, the whole family has risen against your handmaiden. And they said, Deliver him that smote his brother, that we may kill him for the life of the brother whom he slew, and we will destroy the heir also, so that they shall quench my coal which is left, and shall not leave my husband neither name nor remainder upon the earth. So the king said unto the woman, Go to your house, and I will give charge concerning you. And the woman of Tekoa said to the king, My lord, O king, the iniquity is on me and on my father's house, and the king and his throne is guiltless. And the king said, Whosoever says aught unto you, bring him to me, and he shall not touch you any more. So let's stop there. <laughs> there. She is building this story, and she is playing playing a game here. Uh, 
she goes, she comes in and she bows down uh, with her face to the ground and says, help, help me, king. <laughs> and he goes, well, what's wrong? You know, David's tenderhearted. This is an older woman, probably reminds him of his mom a little bit. You know, it's an older woman. And she's coming in looking all sad and mourning. And he goes, what's wrong with you? And she goes, I am indeed a widow woman and my husband is dead. Well, that kind of makes sense. If she's a widow, her husband's dead. <laughs> so there's a repetition here. She's, she's making a point. I am, you know, I, I, am a, I am a widow and my husband is dead, David. Just, just listen to me. And then she goes, I had two, two, two sons and they strove together in the field and one smote the, and none could break them up and one of them slew the other. So she has two very misbehaving boys and they get into a really big fight and one kills the other. And we know they're misbehaving because they're, they're angry enough to be bitterly fighting. And this isn't just a word of fight or a, or a you know, quick, quick physical battle. These guys are going hammer and thong, tooth and nail. They are seriously angry with each other is the picture that she has. They have no self-control. They have no righteousness and is the appearance of what there is, is what's going on. And this goes, one of them killed him. Killed him. What is she trying to remind David of? Absalom and Ammon. Okay. So what is, Ab, what is Joab trying to do here? He's trying to do the same thing that Nathan did. Let's get him emotionally involved in this story. Hey, I, I had two boys and they fought each other. She, the hope is that David's going to immediately go to Ammon and, and Absalom and the bitterness that they had amongst themselves. And probably did. He probably did go there a little bit. Oh, you had two boys just like I have two boys that didn't like each other. And, uh, and then she said, the whole family is risen against your handmaiden and say, deliver him that smote his brother that we may kill him for the life of the brother whom he slew, that we may destroy also the heir and they shall quench my coal which is left and shall not leave my husband neither name nor remainder of the earth. In other words, she's saying they're going to get rid of the only heir. It's kind of poetic there, the coal, my, my coal, my only, my only living seed that is out there. And, they're not, and by the way, you know, that means my, son, my husband's not going to have any, any, any uh, heirs. And heirs were important because your heir got the inheritance of the property. All right, so they got the inheritance. So basically she's saying the property is going to return back to the family, but it's not going to belong to my husband anymore or any of his line. She's being poetic. This is her own living, her own living part of her body, you know, her seed. And she, and basically son, you know, number one, David, I'm old. I'm not going to have any more kids. They want to kill my only, my only kid that's left. And that will kill all the, all the descendants of my, my husband. All right. She's, she's trying to play on David's heart, you know, trying to play on his heart and get, get him emotionally involved that she really, really needs his help. You know, the entire family, because remember, what ends up happening is the inheritance laws were that the inheritance belonged to the children of the, the father. Uh, and you remember that if they died young, the nearest kin of, the, of that in, uh, husband was to marry the, the wife and the first child belonged to the dead man, you know, had the dead man's name. This was the story of Ruth. If you remember the story of Ruth, uh, Boaz went to the city town because he loved Ruth. He wanted to marry her, but there was one that was closer. 
And he says, yeah, I'll take them because he wanted the property. And he goes, now remember, the day you marry her, you know, the day you take this property, you marry Ruth. And he didn't want to do that because that meant that he now had an extra wife. And that firstborn child was not going to be his. It was going to belong to Naomi and take that property back that he had paid money for. So he decided he didn't want to do it. And a lot of times that's what happened. They didn't, you know, they didn't do it because, well, number one, you, if you had a wife already, you all of a sudden got a second wife, which wasn't a very nice thing in the other. You usually didn't love your, your, your sister-in-law. You know, you did it, you were doing out of duty. And you knew that you were going to lose that first child that you did produce by that person. So most of the time, it wasn't a very fun thing to do unless you really loved your, your, your brother's wife, which, which probably had problems in and of itself. I didn't work at Boaz wanted her anyway. Boaz wanted her. Oh, Boaz wanted her. Boaz, Boaz didn't have a wife, and he, and we went through that story when we did Ruth. You know, he, he saw her in the field, and it's like, wow, who is that beautiful woman out there? You know, it doesn't quite say it that way, but his question was, hey, who, who, who is that out there? And you know the words were. Uh, I've never seen that girl out there. Uh, uh, who, who is that out there in the field? Because he invited her to eat at his table and fed her and, and uh, protected her and all that. So, yeah, he wanted her. The other, the closer kin didn't want her. So basically she's saying, you know, hey, I'm too old. Yeah. This was the statement, remember, what Naomi said to her, to her daughter-in-law. Even if I got married today and had a child today, are you going to wait till they're old enough to to be married to you? In other words, are you going to wait around 12, you know, 14, 14, 15 years until they're old enough to be, to be married to you? You know, that's when she was encouraging them, go home, <laughs> go, go, go back home. And here we have this woman saying basically the same thing. I'm too old to have any children. You know, the only, the only ember I have, the only, living, the only living fire I have is in my son. And my family want to kill him. And here, and David says, well, go back to your house and I will give charge concerning them. In other words, saying, I will, I will put an order out. If anybody touches your son, I'm going to protect him. So David does what he's supposed to, you know, technically what he's supposed to do. He's still the Supreme Court judge. He's supposed to punish the person for, for murder, but he's having mercy, just as he had mercy on himself, just as he had mercy on Absalom, just as he had mercy on Ammon. All these people commit capital offenses, and David doesn't kill them. David doesn't execute judgment on them. <laughs> oh, believe me, I understand. A lot of this is he's looking at, I was given mercy. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not judging Judging with that judgment. That could be a lot of things, but I don't want to be a hypocrite. And that could be. It could very well be. God forgave me of my two capital offenses. I'm going to be very forgiving. The only problem when a judge is that forgiving, it generates evil in the in the place. And this is why it's important. You know, we look at the law in our in our country. The law turns its turns its back on so many little things. And then people keep getting worse and worse. And this happens over and over again. When we don't hold people accountable to their standards, they keep getting worse. And God never lets people get away with their sin. It may look like they're getting away with it, but they never get away with it. They're always conscious of it. And God is always pricking their conscience and reminding them. And they're expecting the, the punishment. And then the woman in verse 9, and, and the woman of Tekoa said to the king, My lord, O king, the iniquity is on me and on my father's house, and the king in his throne is guiltless. You know, God, you know, he's saying, she's, I'm guilty. 
not the king. Again, they're playing on David's emotions here. You know, David, you, oh, you were guilty, and the king didn't, didn't go after you. The, the king was guiltless, and in this case, the king was not guiltless, but the ultimate supreme king was. And it says, the king says, whoever says ought to you, bring him to me, and he shall not touch you. In other words, he's going, hey, if anybody bothers you, you, you just get him over here to me, and I, and I will make sure that they don't touch you. David is setting himself up to be her protector. He's the king. He's supposed to do this. He's supposed to protect his people. And this is what he's saying. You know, hey, yeah, you, any of your family keep bugging you about this, and they don't, they don't take my word. You know, he probably gave her a signed, sealed decree that it was from him and said, if they don't listen to you and they keep bothering you, come back. Bring them with you. Bring them with you. Nobody wants to go before the king. And, well, most people don't want to go before the king, especially if you're on the wrong side of the argument. Uh, you, know, you go on the king on the wrong side of the argument, you, know, you may lose your head. You may end up, you know, or you may end up in, in the dungeon one way or the other. You're not, you're not going to be happy. So if you're guilty, you don't want to go before the king. Verse 11, then she said, I pray you, let the king remember the Lord your God, that you would not suffer the avengers of the blood to destroy any more, lest they destroy my son. And he said, as the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of your son fall to the earth. And the woman said, let your handmaiden, I pray you, speak one word unto the Lord and the king. And he said, say on. And the woman said, wherefore then have you thought such a thing against the people of God? For the king does speak this thing as one which is faulty, in that the king does not fetch home again his banished son. For we must needs die, and as water is spilt upon the ground, which cannot be gathered up again, neither doth God respect any person, nor does he devise means that his banishment be not expelled from him. Now therefore that I am come to speak this thing unto my lord the king, it is because the people have made me afraid, and your handmaiden said, I will now speak unto the king. It may be that the king will perform the request of his handmaiden. For the king will hear to deliver his handmaiden out of the hand of the man that would destroy me and my son, together out of the inheritance of, the, uh, inheritance of God. Then the handmaiden said, The word of the Lord, the king now, shall be comfortable. For as the angel of the God, so is my lord the king to discern good and evil, Therefore, the Lord, your king, your God, will be with you. So we're going to look at this. She, she's pretty bold. She's getting very bold on this. Verse 10 says, uh, verse 11 says, And she said, I pray you unto the king, your God, that you would not suffer the avengers of the blood to destroy any more, lest they destroy my son. And he said, As the Lord lives, there shall not one hair of your son fall to the earth. With the story being presented here, I believe that the rest of David's sons and family wanted Absalom killed. Because she keeps overall em emphasizing this. The family's wanting to kill my son. The family's wanting to kill my son. People are wanting to kill my son. She keeps pounding on this, which may be why David was content to let Absalom <laughs> stay at grandpa's. Because it may be, you know, Absalom, yes, Ammon did something terrible, and Absalom waited years to kill Abna, Ammon. And I believe that the sons were probably fearful. They ran for their lives. They were fearful that Absalom was going to kill them as well. And I believe there's some bloodlust on their minds. You know, let, you know, don't let this brother get near us because we're going to, 
you know, we're going to uh, take care of him because he took, you know, because of the vengeance he took on somebody in cold blood. They knew him. Huh? They knew him. They knew him. They knew the type of man he was, and he knew them. And so I'm thinking, just because this is over and over and over again, and she comes in and says, the people want you to restore your son, but don't let the family touch him. Abner knew what was going on. He knew the bitterness of the, of the, of the uh, other princes. And he's setting this story up. So I think this, this story indicates to me that the rest of the family wanted, wanted the blood right. They wanted the revenge on him, especially any brothers that Ammon had, because it's their right to go kill Ab Absalom. Just because he ran away doesn't... You know, they should have ridden into the other country and got him, but you know, again, he's being, he's being protected by, by Grandpa, who's king in another, another area, so they're not able to go get Absalom. And it says, you know, verse 12, And the woman said, Let your handmaid, I pray, speak one more word. <laughs> you know, she's being bold. This kind of, in many ways, this kind of remem reminds me of Abraham talking to God as... As, as Jesus is talking to him when he's getting ready to destroy Sodom. Lord, let me make a request of you. Will you destroy it for 50 people? Oh, no, I won't. Oh, let, let me just ask you one more thing. Will you destroy it for 40 people? Lot. Lot. Saving Lot. Yeah, that was Abraham saved, to save Lot. You know, oh, let me ask you one more. <laughs> you know, and one more. One more. Don't, just have some patience with me. I'm not quite done yet. This woman is, I think, taking that kind of story. Abner knows his Bible a little bit. He knows the stories. He, he knows how to gently prod and, and lay the story and put one more case out in front of him and then one more case out in front of him, just taking, his, taking it from what Abraham did, taking it from what Nathan did to, to David. He's, he's knows his, he knows his history. Doesn't know, don't know that he knows God, but he definitely knows his history. And so she goes, one more thing, my Lord. <laughs> he says, okay, you can almost probably feel some exasperation. Yeah, okay, say on, how many more times is this going to go on? <laughs> and then she says, or what she came to there to say, wherefore have you thought such a thing against the people of God? For the king does speak this thing as one that is faulty or guilty. In other words, she's saying, David, you're a hypocrite. You know, she's being bold at this point. She didn't say hypocrite, she says one that's guilty. But really what she's saying and trying to get in his heart, David, you're being a hypocrite. You're going to protect my son, but you're not protecting your son. And that's where she goes into the, in that the king does not fetch home his banished, his banished. Now it was for Absalom's good sake that he was banished. He was safer in the foreign country than he's going to be in Jerusalem, but he is no longer going to be able to become king. I don't remember how far down the, the list he is, but you know, he is up there. He is one of the firstborn, one of the firstborns of the wives, so he is up there on the list. And we're going to find out Solomon gets picked, and he's, no, he's nowhere close to the firstborn, but that is who God picks. And how often does God pick the insignificant and the minor and the weak? All through Scripture, we see God choosing usually the youngest. Joseph was second youngest. He was youngest when he was picked. He was second youngest. Jacob was ch chosen over Esau, who was the, who was the elder. So God often picked the youngest child to be the next ruler. Moses was younger than Aaron and uh, their sister Miriam. 
he was younger than both of them, yet God chose him. When Jesus walked on this planet, the disciples he picked were all young men. We know that Peter was the oldest of the, of the disciples. He had to be at least 30 because when they asked about Jesus paying the tax, the only two that had to pay the tax were the two adults that were old enough, and that was Jesus and Peter. The rest of them were teenagers or in their young 20s. You know, these guys were young. You know, and this is the amazing thing. God uses insignificant people. He uses the young ones. And to be a rabbi, you had to be at least 30 years old in, in Israel. So Jesus was 30, at least 30 years old when he started teaching because they called him rabbi. Peter didn't take the title rabbi, but we know that he had to have been in that same, same age bracket. The rest of them were young. And how young? We don't really know. Some people really believe, like John, they believe was probably a, literally a teenager. When, when he was wandering around with Jesus. But as we look at that, we've got to be careful because 12 years old, you were an adult, an adult in, the Jewish, in the Jewish mindset. There, there wasn't, once you hit 12 years old, you were guilty, you were, you were able to take the penalty for any crime as any other adult would be. They didn't, they didn't make you a kid up until 21 or 50 like we do nowadays. <laughs> oh no, he's still young. He's, on, he's only 78, he's still young. He, he, yeah, he's still living with mom and dad. He's, he's a youngster. Now, they were, they were not in that youngster part back then. And then it says, Now, therefore, I am come to speak this thing unto the king. It is because the people have made me afraid, and your handmaid said, I will now speak to the king. It may be that the king will, will perform the request. For the king will hear and deliver his handmaiding out of the hand of man, that it would be that would destroy me and my son altogether out of the inheritance of God. So she's going back to her story, but she's saying, David, you're speaking, you're speaking you know, as one guilty. You've got a son that you have not, that you have rejected. Technically, she's saying, you, you have banished your son. You've just as well killed him. You took him away from his home. You took him away from his, his family. And apparently she didn't know that he went to grandpa, but... <laughs> Uh, he's living in the lap of luxury at Grandpa's house, you know, so Grandpa's palace or within Grandpa's luxury area. So he has not been, you know, the story she's making it. Well, you know, your your son Absalom's living in a hut in the middle of, middle of the mountain and starving to death, and you and you banished him from from all the privileges of the kingdom. And I don't know that he was living in the palace with his grandpa, but he was definitely probably not living in a rundown. Uh, lean to somewhere in the middle of nowhere. Uh, Grandpa was most likely supporting him. Maybe not in the luxury that David could because David was very wealthy and very victorious, but he was not a broke individual. And then it says in verse 17, and then the handman said, the word of my Lord, the king is now comfortable. Be now comfortable for as the angel of the Lord, so is my God, the king to discern good and evil. Therefore, the Lord your God is with you. So he's going, she's going, God, you know, you're, David, you're very wise. She's buttering him up, flattering him. It's amazing to me how easy it is for people to get their way just by flattering somebody. You know, oh, you're just so smart. You're just so wonderful. And you're so wise. There's nobody like you. If, you know, if other people were like you, they would make better decisions and and you always make the good decisions, and you're always there to help people, and you see this all through our statements. She is flattering David right and left. 
trying to make David feel really important. Now, David already feels pretty important. He's the king. Now, but she is really buttering him up. And, you know, a lot of times salespeople do the same thing. They make you feel really wonderful and good. You're the smartest person that's ever walked on this world. You're, you're the most intelligent. You're, the, you, you're, you're, you know, you, you're making a wise decision. We need to really get into the book of Proverbs. It says, beware the flatterer. Because there's a knife and a, and a poison amongst their, amongst their words more often than not. And she is just flattering David. You know, it's amazing when I read this, how, how she's just trying to flatter. And it appears that David's eating it up. You know, David is eating this up, up, you know. Oh, yes, I'm really wonderful. I am discerning. I am, I am wise. I am kind. I am good. He is, he is eating this up and really just kind of patting himself on his own back. You know, yes, oh, look, look at me how wonderful I am. And then he asks her, you know, and she goes, let the Lord now the king speak, you know, in verse 18. And then we look at verse 19. David all of a sudden gets a little smart here. The flatter, all of a sudden the flattering gets into his mind and he's going, okay, this, something's going on here. This story sounds a little too fishy. The flattering is probably... You know, she praised his, his wisdom, and all of a sudden he started being wise and started really looking at what she's saying. Verse 19, and the king said, Is not this the hand of Joab in you and all of this? And the woman answered and said, as, my, as your soul lives, my lord the king, none can turn the right hand nor to the left from aught that my lord the king hath spoken. For your servant Joab, he bade me, and he put these words in my mouth of your handmaiden to fetch about this form of speech has your servant Joab done this thing and my Lord is wise according to the wisdom of the angel of God to know all the things that are in the earth so she admits it and even while she's doing that she's still buttering him up and flattering him because all of a sudden David goes okay this is this is kind of fishy and you might think he's thinking this all along all right what's going on with this woman's story you know this this and, he, and he's still close enough to the story of Nathan that he might be remembering what Nathan did to him. You know, uh, and kind of being a little coy here and saying, okay, what's going on? And he's going, this sounds too much like Joab. Maybe Joab's made the same type of argument with him. Maybe not the same story, but the same type of argument. David, you should bring, you should bring Absalom back. It's not right that you banished him. You know, you, you, you've gotten rid of him. And when she starts saying, David, you're being a hypocrite, you're being faulty, all of a sudden, his brain is going back to words that Abner has probably said to him because she's starting to edge now outside of, outside of her story. And David confronts her. You know, this sounds a lot like Abner. Joab. Or Joab. Why do I want to keep going back to Abner? Back to Joab. Joab, Joab, Joab. <laughs> Maybe I'll remember it till the rest of this day. And so she goes, yes, you're right. It is, he's the one that told me to speak these words and to, to fetch you out the words of Joab according to your, and then she goes back to, according to the wisdom of the angel of God and, the, and, you, know, and you know all things, you know, hey, God, you know, king, you're a wise king. You, you're, you're listening to God. You, you, are, you are all wise. And she goes back to buttering him up. What, what a con artist she is. She, she probably could have made this story up with Ab, without uh, Joab's input on it, but 
he's given her the words to say and she plays the part well. This is the type of person she is. She, she is the one that, ties, that really plays the con. And David's falling for it as well. Verse 21. And the king said to Joab, Behold, now I have done this thing. Go, therefore, bring the young man Absalom again. And Joab fell on his, to the ground on his face and bowed himself and thanked the king. And Joab said, Today your servant knows that I have found grace in your sight, my lord, O king, in that the king hath fulfilled the request of his servant. So Joab arose and went to Gersher and brought Ab- Absalom to Jerusalem. And the king said unto him, Turn him to him, turn to his house, and let him not see my face. So Absalom returned to his own house and saw not the king's face. Absalom gets his wish. He gets to come home. Now, I don't know, we don't know, is it Ab- a Joab that pushes for, for Absalom, or did Absalom go to, to Joab and, and say, you know, go talk to my dad. I want to come home. I've been away for three years. I want to come home. I'm tired of living away. We don't know who's pushing it. I think that it was probably Absalom sending to Joab and saying, you know, hey, Joab, you're, you're close to my dad. You're, he's, you, he respects you. Would you go ask him, beg him to let me come home? And David finally relents. And I kind of find it interesting in verse 22. Joab falls flat on his face, and he starts buttering David up and thanking him. Now, in Joab's thing, I don't know if he's playing the buttering up or if he's thankful that he didn't lose his head. Okay, for, for, for what he's done. Because David could be very upset with him. Uh, you hired this person, you're playing on my emotions, and I'm going to now make you, make you punish. I don't know which way this is going. I don't know what the relationship is. Joab's just playing and saying, you know, hey, you know, I'm buttering you up, David. You're really, you're really good. Or if he really has some fear. Don't know. Don't know. Joab, Joab is not the... the most unfearful person because we've seen that fear in him at various even though he's a general he's led the people into battle he has done a lot of things that aren't very godly probably has some worries and here David could be upset with him and when he's called in front of David he doesn't know yet what he's going to see when he comes before David and David says you know and he says I found grace in your sight of the king and you've answered my request and Joab arose and went to Gersher and brought Absalom back to Jerusalem. And the king told, told Joab, okay, you brought him back. Now tell him to go to his house. He's not going to see me. This is going to irritate Ab- Absalom to no end. He gets to come home, but he doesn't get to come home. He gets to go to his house, which would be a nice, you know, he's, he's a prince. It's going to be a nice house. David is very wealthy, so he's going to have a nice house to live in property and flocks and all this stuff but he doesn't get to go into the palace he doesn't get to have access to the king which is a big deal at grandpa's house he probably had some absolute to uh, access to the king maybe not a lot of influence but he had access to the king now he's back home in jerusalem and he's a wealthy nobody don't be thankful that you're not dead yeah you know, you could have been dead, you could have been killed, uh, anything like that, but, you know, but no, he's just grumpy. But, you know, how many people are never happy with what they have? I've seen so many of these people, and many times they're Christians even. It doesn't matter what they have, it doesn't matter how they're blessed. 
they don't see the blessing because they're always wanting something else. They always have a covetous nature for something else. I don't have what so-and-so has. I don't have this. I, yes, I've got a lot of stuff, but I don't have. And that envy, that covetousness is not just for the wealthy. There are a lot of poor people that are extremely covetous and envious. If I just had, you know, I have a car that works. It gets me everywhere I want to go, but I don't have the new car. You know, I don't have the right phone. I don't have the right, I don't have the, I can't get the right things. I don't have, I'm not living in the right neighborhood. And they move up in the ranks eventually, and they're still not in the right neighborhood. They're still never going to be happy. The wealthy people can be the same way. The people are looking at, boy, if I just had what they had, I'd be happy. No, you wouldn't, because they're not happy. You know, they want the next best thing. Well, God, I have, a, I have a car that's two years old, and my friend down the street has a brand new car that has all the bells and whistles, and my car, yeah, it's only two years old, but it, I couldn't afford all the bells and whistles, and now I, now I want a car that has all the bells and whistles. And you know, if you're not going to be content with God in little, you're not going to be content with God in much, and if you're not learning to be content with God, you're never going to be content without him coming in and changing your heart. Absalom has now been restored. He's back in Jerusalem. He can go to the temple and worship if he wants to. He's with his people. And he's still not going to be content. Not happy. Now David probably didn't, isn't being very fair to him either on this. He brought him home, but isn't, isn't going to let him come into the palace and see, see him. He cannot come before the king. So in essence, he's still banished. He doesn't have a death sentence over him. He's, he's, been, he's been cleared of that. He's None of his, because you can know his brothers are now going to be told, okay, we're bringing him back. Family, you're not touching him. I brought him back. I've forgiven him. You're not touching him. So he's not worried about his life, but he doesn't have the status that he had. He can't go see David. He can't talk to David. He probably isn't even allowed in the palace in case he comes across David. All right? Because he's not going to see David's face is what is, is said to him. And that means he is not a very happy camper at this moment. Verse 25. But in all of Israel there was none so much to be praised as Absalom, for his beauty from the sole of his foot even to the crown of his head, there was no blemish in him. For when he pulled his head, for it was at every year, year's end that he pulled it, because his hair was very heavy on him, therefore he pulled it, he weighed this hair of his head at 200 shekels after the king's weight. And unto Absalom were born three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar, and she was a woman of fair countenance. So we're, here we have the description of Absalom. He was a hunk. <laughs> okay. He, he was somebody that people looked at and said, wow. You know, he, he is somebody people wanted. The women all appreciated him. And the way it makes it sound is he was good enough looking that even the guys appreciated and probably envied his looks. And he had long hair. And it says he had very long hair, and it says from the foot to the crown of his head he was beautiful. He had no blemish. When you looked at him, there was nothing that you said, well, he's really beautiful except. It would be, wow, this guy is really good looking. He was the, he was the pinup for the girls. He was the one that the guy said, I, that's what I want to look like. You know, if, I wanna, if I wanted to really be the, be, be the, the looker, you know, I need to look like him. And it says he had a lot of hair. 
And it says in verse 20, when he pulled, that means to, to shave. He shaves off his head. Every year he shaved off his head. He shaved off his hair. It goes fast for him. Uh, in one year, his hair would grow back, and it would grow to 200 shekels. And I know everybody knows exactly how much that is. That's about six, six pounds of hair every year. Now, I don't know what, why they measured it. He probably sold it to the wig makers or whatever. So can you imagine the price of that? You get, you get Epsilon's hair for, the, for your wig. You know. It probably would be. You know, this, is, this is the prince's hair. You know, this is, this, is, this is the guy you all desire to be. We've got, we're going to make wigs out of his hair. <laughs> well, there's people like that. Their hair, grows, their hair grows fast, and so every year he's got about six pounds of hair he shaves off. Now we're going to find out this hair is not going to be good for him later on. His long hair is how he gets caught up in a tree and hangs from a tree and finally gets killed. Um, which also means his hair was pretty strong hair. He had pretty strong hair to be hanging from a tree and not fall from his hair. So, yeah, he's, his hair is not just long and strong. You know, it is strong hair. It is thick hair. Probably, made, probably did make good wigs. And I'm sure, it doesn't say that he made wigs, but I'm pretty sure they used his hair to make the wigs uh, uh, for people. And, Absalom, and to Absalom were born three sons and one daughter whose name was Tamar, and she was a woman of fair countenance, so he named her after his sister, Tamar. And it says she was a fair, she was a beautiful girl. Now, this is one of the places where people will point to the Bible and say, here is a contradiction in the Bible. Because it says Absalom has three sons. In 2 Samuel verse 18, chapter 18, verse 18, we read, Now Absalom in his lifetime had taken and reared himself up as a pillar, which is the king's, is the king's deal. For he said, I have no son to keep my name in remembrance. He called the pillar after his own name, and it is called to this day Absalom's place. So people will say, well, see, you've got him having three sons. Now he say, has, says he has no sons. Well, I would say the mortality rate meant that he had no sons when he made this pillar. All of his sons were dead. Just as this woman who you know, went in and said, my son's dead and they want to take my last son, he is, he is sons are dead. Huh? Eight, chapter 18, verse 18, 18 in 2 Samuel. How did they die? Well, he went into rebellion. They might have died during the rebellion. They might have gone into being soldiers. They might have gotten sick. Who knows how they died? We don't know how they died, but it is obvious because the only other answer is that the Bible is true. He had children, they died. Easy answer. Easy answer there. That he had children and now they're dead. Even though it doesn't say that they died, it becomes obvious that they had to have died. And again, mortality rate back then was pretty, pretty high. And young children, you know, people will make a big deal out of the fact that in the, even in the last century in America, the, the average age of people were, was in the 30s and 40s. Well, the biggest problem with that is the average age included all the infants that died, and people would lose half of their children to stillborn, or, or, or they didn't make it past two and three years old. Half your people died at age zero to two. Once you made it into your teens, you pretty much were going to live outside of war. And people lived to be 60 and 70, 80 years old 
in the 1800s and the 1700s and all through. The hard part was getting past childhood. <laughs> Once you were past childhood, you lived. It doesn't tell us when his children died. It just tells us that we had three children and a daughter who got to be very beautiful. So she probably lived a little longer than her brothers. So just if you have anybody tell you, well, see, here's one of your contradictions. Well, no, it doesn't tell us, but his children probably died. Not a, not a hard part. Not a hard thing to answer. And they'd be, well, the Bible doesn't say they died. No, it doesn't say that, but the Bible doesn't say a lot of things. But it's obvious if Absalom doesn't have children when he finally loses his life, they died somewhere along the lines. And it is possible that he killed them off. Oftentimes, kings would kill their own children because they got jealous of their, king, of their, their own children because they didn't want the children to rise up and take their, take their position. So, consequences consequences of a bad guy, you lose your kids. Yeah. And that may be very much what happened. I do know at least one man that I know his children died because of his sin. And it's sad. It is really sad that they died because of the consequences for his sin. And we see it all through scriptures that many times the children die out of consequences for what's going on. And it's sad. God knows what he's doing. He's got a plan. It's hard for us to understand. But God says, I've got a plan. So we see here, Absalom is that hunk. He, and he has long hair. And this, is, this long hair is setting up the stage for later on when he dies by his long hair. And the Bible does tell us that long hair on, on, on a man is an abomination, and his hair is pretty long. If he gets six pounds of hair, your hair has to be pretty long. I don't care how thick it is. It has to be pretty long at the same time to get six pounds worth of hair on your head. Huh? Samson's hair was by the vow, the Nazarite vow, so he had somewhat long hair. But God does say it's an abomination. Why? Because it it blurs the gender, the genders. And uh, but we do have the vows that said don't cut your hair, and there's times when people did. I don't think Absalom had taken a vow, vow of the Nazarite vow. <laughs> he he just liked his hair. Uh, in, our, in our younger days, it was, he would have been Fabian. Yeah. The long hair, the flip of the hair, the, you know, the, the body that was, I don't know if it was perfect, but you know, he had that body that people envied. You know, Absalom, you know, Absalom was, the fa you know, was the equivalent of our Fabian. I don't know who the current, I don't know who, I don't know who the current Fabio, Fabio, whatever his name was. I didn't pay much, I remember it began with an F.A. and you know, he'd always, every time you saw him, he was flipping his hair. And I, and I guess he was good-looking in, in you know, to a degree, but you know, and this is, that's who Absalom was. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't know who the current, current hunk is. I don't pay that attention to those kind of things. So, yeah, oh, me, yeah, right. <laughs> Everybody wants to look like me. <laughs> you know, fat, fat, short-haired, and great. <laughs> All right, verse 28. So Absalom dwelt two full years in Jerusalem and saw not the king's face. So he's been away for three years, comes back, and he hasn't seen David for two years. Therefore, Absalom sent to Joab to have him sent to, to send him to the king, but he, Joab, would not come to him. And when he sent him for a second time, he would not come. Therefore, he said to his servant, See, Joab's field is near mine, and he hath barley there. Go set, fire to, go set it on fire. And Absalom's servant set fire the field on fire. 
And Joab arose and came to Absalom <laughs> unto his house and said, why have, you, why have your servants set my field on fire? And Absalom answered, Joab, behold, I sent unto you and said, come hither that I may send you to the king to say, wherefore am I come from Gersher? It hath been good for me to have, to have been there still. Now, therefore, let me see the king's face. And if there be any iniquity in me, let him kill me. So Joab went to the king and told him, and when he had called for Absalom, he came to the king and bowed himself to the face on the ground, and therefore the king, and before the king, and the king kissed Absalom. This gives you an idea of what kind of man Absalom is. He sends a messenger to Joab and says, hey, come and see me. I want to I petition the king, and you're the only one that can do it. Joab ignores him. So he sends a second one to him, and he says, all right, I'm going to get Joab's attention. I'm going to burn his field. Wanton destruction is not the way to get somebody's attention in a good way. Again, Joab has the right now to demand a lot of money from Ab Absalom. And he comes in and he's angry. Why did you burn my field? <laughs> and Absalom goes, hey, you were ignoring me. <laughs> yeah. This gives you the kind of person Abner is, uh, Absalom is. You know, all right, Amnon rapes my sister. He gets away from it. I want to make sure he pays. You know, I, and I killed my brother. I'm coming back now. Joab is no longer listening to me. I deserve to be listened to. He still has a prideful streak in him. Joab is ignoring me. I don't deserve to be ignored. I'm going to make him pay attention to me. Orders his field burnt. And then says, it's all your fault, Joab. If you had come to me in the first place, I wouldn't have burnt your field down. It's amazing how people will justify their actions, and usually they'll blame somebody else. If you had just done what I thought you were supposed to have done, none of this would have happened. If you had just sold me your property like you should have, I wouldn't have had to burn down the property. Uh, you know, hey, Na hey uh, there's Nabal's field, that, not Nabal, the threshing field that, that uh, uh, Jezreel gets for uh, for her son, uh, for her husband. You know he wouldn't sell it to him, so they they accuse him of cursing God and kill him, just so they can get his field, and say, well, it's all his fault if he hadn't cursed God. He never cursed God. <laughs> you know, but it's amazing, and it, the amazing thing is, this is still goes on today. It has gone on all through history, where people get blamed for doing things they didn't do, and it's all their fault because they didn't do something the way somebody wanted it done. And so Absalom saying, hey, Joe, I bet your fault your field got burnt. It, it doesn't even say there that he, he offers to pay back or give him money back for it. He just says, well, if you'd come to me like, you were supposed, you know, like I called you, by the way, I'm still prince. I may not have seen David's face, you know, dad's face, but I'm still prince, and you didn't come when you were called. Basically what he's saying. So I made you come. I burnt your field. And there's no repentance in his heart for burning Joab's field, or at least none that we see. He said, basically, it's your fault. You didn't come. Now, get your butt over there and talk to Dad and tell him I want to see his face because, you know, I could have just stayed in, in Gersher for, for all the good it is. And it's been five years now since I've seen Dad's face. I was away for three, and it's been two years. I think I've been punished long enough, and I should have just stayed in Gersher rather than come back. He's not happy that he still has his life. He's, still, he's not happy that he's been returned to Jerusalem. 
He's not happy that he has a field to be able to, to, uh, to uh, harvest. He's not happy that he probably has flocks to, to feed himself, that he could go to the temple and worship. Nothing about him is content. He doesn't have what he wants, and that is to be back in the palace, to be, have David's ear, because he thinks he's pretty good at convincing people, because he's gotten away with it. Somehow he convinced his brother to come to a feast where, when they hadn't talked for years. Come to this feast. We're going to have a good time. I know, I know you know that I hate you, but come to my feast anyway. And he comes. You know, it doesn't make sense. This man, from everything we read between the lines, is good. He is good at making people believe what he wants them to believe and good at getting them to do what he wants them to do. Joab is actually going to go talk to David. You know, we see just a part of it, but I'm sure there were a lot more words on it, you know, that, where he played him up, he buttered him up, he, he talked to him on how it's good and how it's going to be good for him to be, be back in the palace. And Joab goes, and David finally relents because he still loves his son. Now, we see David has great love for his children. He has no desire to discipline his children, and we see that over and over and over again. But he definitely loves his children. He just doesn't know how to be a good father. And unfortunately, there are many people that don't know how to be good parents. They're not getting into word of, the word of God and finding out how to be a good parent. They don't even look to God and see how does God parent. Because a lot of times people look at God and say, God, why are you letting people get away with things? And God says they're not. They're not getting away with it. You didn't get away with it. They're not getting away with it. God always brings a consequence, and judgment always falls in the long run. We, everybody will stand before God at either the Bema seat or the judgment, white throne judgment, and give an account. Final word is we will account for our sin, even if it looks like we get away with it. But in reality, we don't get away with it. God's always there pricking the conscience pricking the emotions, always there saying, yeah, pay attention, yeah, repent, here's your, here's your opportunity to repent. And I've said this over and over, when people stand at the white throne judgment and they're guilty, they're going to hell. Anybody standing at the white throne judgment is guilty. And God's going to show them every time they rejected his conviction, every time they rejected the message of Christ, Every time they rejected turning their life over to God, it's going to say, you are guilty. Now, if you're a Christian, you're a believer in Christ, a Christian, you get to stand at the Bema seat, and you're going to get to lose rewards because you didn't obey, but we're going to heaven. And God's going to say, let's take and check out your works. They're good. He's not judging us for our sins. He's judging our works. Are they good? Were they done, done by him? Whether they righteous, filthy rags that burn up. Because filthy rags do not stand in, in the throne room of heaven. And he says, okay, some people will have most of their life burn up. Because they're trying, they're trying to live on their own. So everybody gets judged by their works for God. For reward. Because we don't get heaven. Yeah. If we're his child, we've got heaven. Yeah. But we're going to stand before Jesus and he's going to say, what have you done? And who did them? Wood, hay, and stubble burn up, and those are all the things I can do. The, the thief on the cross, so he probably didn't get hardly any rewards. I'm not sure if he did or not, because his story has been repeated well, for 2,000 years. Because, yeah, because he... 
Well, he got saved. He defended, he defended Jesus on the cross, which gives him a reward just for defending. But what has happened in the years since? His story has been repeated for 2,000 years. Can continue after you're dead. We use his story all the time. The, the, the widow who gave all that she has, her story has continued for all. How many people have been influenced to serve God and give all because of her testimony? I'm not saying it definitely could happen, but I'm just saying God's perspective is different than ours. God knows what's going to happen. Jonah, think about Jonah. I really truly believe Jonah went to Nineveh. The entire city repented. He went up the hill waiting for God to judge them and, and griped and complained. He had one of the greatest revivals ever done by one man and probably got no reward for it because of his attitude toward it. He did it, he did it with the wrong attitude, the wrong, the wrong, he was obedient, which may get him a reward, but he did it with all the wrong attitude oh, and wrong not. desires. So he may not get the reward. He may not get the reward for all the ten thousands of people that got saved because of his revival. And we don't know ourselves because we don't, sometimes we do things thinking we're serving God and we're doing it for our own, in our own strength. Other times we're going to be rewarded for things we never even knew we did. And we're going to look at that and go on, what, what, what was, God, I don't remember that when he goes, that was when you were just faithful and people watched you. The key point on this is we don't know what it is we're going to be rewarded. We will be judged. And God is looking for things that he can reward us for. But we won't be judged for sin and we won't be going to hell. In reality, in God's, in God's economy, we don't have sin the moment we say, we ask him for forgiveness. Now, we know that that's not true. But from God's statement, he says you were perfect. So from a heavenly perspective, the moment we are saved, God says we're perfect. And that's how he sees us. Now, he knows we're not. He knows we're being sanctified. But he sees us as he declares us to be. And he's outside of time, so he sees us as we will be in our glorified body. The Father ignores all that in between where the Holy Spirit is working on sanctifying us. Because he, he knows it's there, but he doesn't pay any attention. It's under the blood, it's covered, and he doesn't pay attention to it. And then when we get to heaven, he's going to go, okay, here's your reward. This is what you let me do for you. Wood, hay, and stubble will burn up. And I've said this before, stubble is pretty worthless. You know, we can't think of anything that that stubble will do. Hay, those are the semi-good things we do. Some people get blessed out of the, the good things that, you know, that, that is hay. Wood is pretty substantial. You know, I could be building good, strong doctrine, and I'm teaching in my own strength, and people are being built up. They're, they're getting gold and silver and precious stones, and I'm building nice, nice wooden structures that are, that are building, and they're really good. They're something that somebody can stand on and, and set up their life, and they're getting gold and silver out of it. And God says, okay, your, your wood structure burnt up. We need to be careful. Sometimes people will look at pastors and evangelists and saying, wow, they must have lots of rewards. And God's saying, no, nah, I don't think so. They're doing it for themselves. They're not using all their gifts and talents. They're just using a part of it. Yeah, but you got the person over here just living faithfully for God, trudging through each day, totally content with God, praising God, being a good example. Never, never really seemingly making a big deal, not, not sharing the gospel with a lot of people, but just living a godly life between them and God. And God gets them up there and says, you only had one talent, but man, did you use your one talent.
You used your one talent 100%. Look at the rewards I'm giving you. And he piles the rewards on them. Gets this other person who only uses 20% of their talents and even those ones they're not using to their max. And God says, wow, you know, your talents were really good. You really, you, you got a lot of people saved, but you didn't, you weren't being faithful. We don't know until we get to heaven, are we being truly faithful or not? My desire is to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And I know I've got places where I have not been the most faithful. And it scares me sometimes. I'm sure I've already asked this before. So when we get to heaven, we're going to remember a lot of things. I will give you the answer that that, uh, Chuck Smith gave. You're not going to be more stupid in heaven than you are are here. (laughs) So if you know people here, you're going to know them in heaven. If you know God's, God's will and his work here, I think you're going to know it in heaven. All right? Uh, so I kind of agree with him. Where God is not going to say, okay, forget everything that happened in the world. I don't think that's going to happen. We will see it differently. Even we will see the other side of the tapestry where things all worked out. And we will go, okay, God, yeah, well, oh, that's that place that I really messed up. Wow, God, you really made that a really nice part of the picture. How did, how did you do that, God? You know, I really messed up, and look what you did. You know, that, that little dark spot was really good. It was, you know, I guess you needed the Grand Ca- Shadow in the Grand, Ca- Grand Canyon for what, I, for what I did. But when we see it from that side, it'll all of a sudden make sense. And that's why I like the picture of the tapestry. I like the patch- picture of the tapestry. On this side, we're looking at up at all the knots and the mess and and strings hanging all over the place and uh, you know un, unformed pattern. When we get to the other side and we go, oh, that's why you did that. That's why that's where I messed up. And I thought I really had messed up everything. And it's that dark streak, you know, giving the shadow in the in the tapestry or something. And we go, oh wow, God, you did you did you you did use it. You know, I was a terrible person, God, but man, look at the beautiful picture you made out of, out of my life. All right, let's close. Lord, we just thank you for this day. We thank you for how much you love us and care for us and that you will restore us. And we just thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.